Good afternoon. I'm Carol Boss. Welcome to Women's Focus. We have a full show today with some great guests. I'll be talking with Suzanne Sabarge, Executive Director of 516 Arts, along with Washington, D.C. artist Lori Ivy Alexander, whose work is featured in 516's new online exhibit, Radical Reimaginings. And later, a conversation with UCLA law professor Laura E. Gomez about her new book, Inventing Latinos, A New Story of American Racism. Let me introduce you to my first guest. I've been wanting for a while to talk to Asian American women about their community, and I thought it would be a good time, as I'm interested, too, in the impact of having one of their own running for vice president. And that's Kamala Harris, of course. Last week, I recorded a phone conversation with Katie Calvota. She's the founder and CEO of G3 Ventures, a nonprofit organization specializing in impact investments in innovative philanthropy and community advocacy. Katie is a recipient of numerous national and international awards for her work. She's a sought-after speaker and... She's very much an activist. So, Katie, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm happy to be here. I, you know, you have a really interesting history, Katie. Can you tell us about your family? You were born in Vietnam. Yeah, we um, uh, were refugees, war refugees from the Vietnam War, uh, and we found our way to the United States vis-a-vis uh, a refugee camp in Malaysia. My family stayed there for 13 months. Uh, we were one of the last families to be sponsored out of the refugee camp uh, and made our home in New Orleans, Louisiana. So I'm what you call um, a Cajun Asian. Oh, you're the first Cajun Asian I've ever <laughs> met. Well, there's not very many of us. <laughs> Cajun Asian, that's really great. So what was that like? Um, your family had to leave, that's correct, right? And hmm yeah, we um, obviously the refugee experience is something that's uh, terrifying, life-threatening, uh, you know, horrific in many ways. I was uh, barely a, a toddler, walking toddler, when we made our way to the refugee camp. Um, my mother at the time was pregnant with my younger brother Peter, and he was born in the refugee camp. However, his birth certificate says that he was born in international waters, because at the time no country wanted to claim him. So neither Vietnam or Malaysia wanted to claim my brother. And so he was without a home, without a residence, without any kind of footing. And so I take a lot of uh, personal um, attachment to all the refugees that are either fleeing, um, you know, the, the wars and and tragedies um, in Europe and in uh, Africa to, you know, what's going on south of our border now. Yeah, so it sounds like that you had come from a well-to-do family, and so essentially, just like many who come over refugees, everything had to be started all over again. I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a it's a misnomer that people want to come to the United States by any and all means, and that we all come from um, you know uh, uh, needy backgrounds. In fact, uh, the United States attract 
uh, quite a few number of highly skilled workers as immigrants. Um, but under the Trump administration, you know, we've all sort of been lumped together as the enemy. Um, and I think that uh, for many of our stories, uh, were it not for things like war and famine and other, other consequences of, um, quite frankly, international <laughs> intervention that may have gone wrong, um, you know, people, I think, in general, love to stay in their homeland and uh, fleeing in the midst of war and being a refugee is not something that you that you seek to do, especially since it puts uh, your family's lives in danger. How did you get into the um, financial field? Um, you know, I went to school um, uh, wanting to study business, I guess, because I come from a long line of entrepreneurs. My father had a, a, he started his own company. I have many uh, family members who started their own company. So it was sort of in my DNA. Um, when I went to Berkeley to study, I took a class in economics because it was a prerequisite for a business degree. And I was, you know, entranced by my professor, um, Dr. Christina Romer, who later on went to serve under President Clinton uh, on his economic policy committee. And um, she was just amazing. She laid out for me kind of the world, the intersection between business markets and policy, particularly when it comes to um, things like labor and and um, and what what's sort of the government's role in in determining um, markets and and who it benefits and and how we slice and dice that. So I decided um, to follow in her footsteps, become an economics major. And then when you graduate with that degree, there's only a couple places you can land. You can either land in government work or you can land in the private sector uh, in finance. And that's that's the route that I took just because it was it was the folks that, you know, wined and dined as, as graduates at the time. And I was mesmerized by this world and um, uh, signed on to to work uh, in management consulting. And it also sounds like that you um did a lot of community work as well to some degree. Yeah, you know, my you know, my family benefited quite a bit by the generosity of others. When we were sponsored out of the refugee camp, we were sponsored by Catholic charities and when we made our home in New Orleans, Louisiana, but not for the grace of the um, immediate uh, community uh, outreach from the church community to other diasporic communities reaching out to us and helping us out uh, and helping us sort of make a life uh, in this new country. Um, I've, that's always stayed with me, the, the generosity of others. And so I've always had a very philanthropic side. Um, and all through college, I would volunteer at a number of different nonprofits, um, doing the same, sort of paying it forward. And when I graduated from school, I know I knew that not only did I want to make a living, but I also want to uh, have purpose uh, and be able to integrate part of you know community work into my day to day. Yeah, you've turned out to be a great American. <laughs> well, you know, from from being last picked, <laughs> I, I felt like I had a, a duty to to at least uh, make sure that America knew that they <laughs> they got their money's worth, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's really wonderful. So you are a board member of the Victory Fund, and you, you want to talk about um, what this Victory Fund is all about? 
Sure. So we're a national PAC, a political action committee that's dedicated to the advancement of Asian American um, uh, uh, community. Uh, we want to advocate for and also promote uh, civic engagement within the Asian American community. Um, and we also um, support financially as well as um, with a community outreach work, uh, a variety of different candidates that understand the needs of our community, but also sort of uh, understand the needs of um, building an inclusive America where everyone uh, can have shared prosperity and also um, be seen and, and be heard from. So what are you doing currently? So in this election, we are uh, amplifying uh, Texas uh, as new uh, new territory um, for outreach into the Asian American community. It's one of the fastest growing um, demographic uh, in Texas. And uh, we know that we can be the margin of victory in a lot of different areas. And it's always been you know, fairly elusive to Democrats to win Texas or, or progressives to win Texas. Um, but we see an opening and this isn't, you know, this may or may not be a 2020 um, uh, uh, outcome, but it's certainly within the next 10 years, we will definitely see uh, Texas moving much more blue uh, as more migrants uh, come in from other uh, states like California, um, as well as sort of uh, you know organic demographic growth uh, within Texas. Well, will the selection of uh, Kamala Harris as vice president vice presidential candidate make a difference in that state in terms with that community? Absolutely. Um, there's a very, very large South Asian community uh, in the Houston area. We have a candidate down there. His name is Sri Kolkani, who's running for Congress. Um, and he's a very um, compelling candidate. And he uh, is um, uh, Indian American uh, uh, in origin. Um, but he will also benefit from sort of this this uh, uh, this coalescing of various different communities of color. Um, his district is by far one of the most diverse districts. And so what we're really trying to do is build an umbrella approach where we have uh, coalitions of different communities of color come together, unified in solidarity for the advancement of um, you know, common interests. And a lot of it stems from our, you know, family values to our work ethic to just, you know, sort of educational opportunities and, and things like that, that all immigrant communities um, uh, share. It's part of the American dream that, um, that, you know, all compelled us to come here in the first place, but also um, why it makes America so special. And so we want to advance the American dream for so many people who have felt that it has been unattainable. So in Texas, we see candidates that are speaking to that vision of the American dream, and we hope to help them channel that narrative in different uh, ethnic media outlets um, and then community-based organizations as well. You know, when we spoke to set up this interview, um, you mentioned to me that Asian Americans have had the lowest voter turnouts of all the minorities, which was a surprise to me. Yeah, that's absolutely true. In 2018, the Pew Research uh, did a study, and we um, we ranked uh, dead last in terms of all the ethnic groups. We were at 40.2% uh, voter turnout. Um, next to us is just slightly better is the Latino community at 40.4%. 
Um, but irregardless of that, I think engagement in politics for Asian Americans has always been um, looked at as an extracurricular activity, something that is a bit of a luxury, right? A lot of us are sort of dealing with day-to-day -day concerns of survival, caring for our families, making sure that our kids um, have every opportunity to succeed. And sometimes we're not engaged in local politics to state politics and especially in national politics. So part of the, the mission and mandate of the AAPI Victory Fund is to make sure that we um, we reach those voters, we reach those households and say everything that has to do with your family, all of the aspirations that you have for your children are tied to politics and political decisions. And so if it if you're not doing it for yourself, then please vote on behalf of your children. Yeah. So the the outreach then is to eligible voters who are yes. who ha don't usually vote or vote infrequently. Yeah, or they may have language barriers, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, as an English-speaking person, uh, I go to the polls and I'm overwhelmed by how many selections I have to make and all the propositions. It feels like you're studying for the law exam, <laughs> you know, um, when you're going to vote. And I think that in itself is, is a bit of a barrier for folks who are not um, uh, dominant in English. Um, but also just the whole you know, methodology of voting in, in the U.S. may be quite different than what they're used to, um, perhaps in their homeland. Um, and, and this is speaking mainly for you know, immigrant communities. But there are many Asian American communities who have been here for generations where politics just wasn't spoken in the home right, where we just didn't have a culture of talking about running for office or talking about propositions and policies and, and why you're a Democrat or a Republican. And, and those types of conversations um, need to happen more frequently, and we're trying to help sort of uh, build that into the, the mainstream of conversation in, in our communities. Yes, that sounds really, really important. So the efforts to mobilize the voters. Is that happening? Now, you mentioned Texas is one of the states you're working in. Is it focusing on that or is it happening, happening in more places around the country in, in terms of this upcoming election? Yeah, we're definitely national in focus. And so we have uh, various different um, uh, organizational footprint across the country. So clearly I'm in um, Orange County, California, also home to lots and lots of Asian Americans. And so I'm helping to mobilize locally here in Orange County. We just flipped uh, uh, our uh, four congressional seats blue in 2018. And so that's obviously an area of um, uh, new ground that we have to protect uh, here in Orange County. So mobilizing is sort of a, uh, <laughs> every cycle, we, you know, we have to make further and further investments and we can't take anything for granted. But we're also mobilizing in Virginia and North Carolina and, you know, Pennsylvania and Florida and Georgia, areas where there is a growing population of Asian Americans where we can make a difference. And so obviously we don't have the bandwidth and the resources to blanket the country um, with uh, advertisements and outreach efforts, but we are trying to be very strategic about where we target and, and hopefully use um, existing uh, community-based organizations in these locations uh, to help amplify the work that we're doing. Mm -hmm. So what was your thoughts, feelings, reactions when um, Joe Biden chose um, Kamala Harris as his running mate? 
I mean, I, I was, I was not surprised. I thought she was probably a lead contender all along, but I was very, um, I, I was just very emotional. Um, we had tried to put Asian Americans on the map for at, at the national stage for a very long time, you know, all of our collective individual efforts before the Victory Fund. Um, but when we came together as the Victory Fund, we endorsed, uh, we were the first organization to endorse Joe Biden back in January. And actually our photo was featured in day three of the convention on CNN. Uh, and it was a nod to us, we know, because we were one of the first ones to to come out and endorse him. And this was at a time when uh, he wasn't the clear front runner, you know. Um, and I think it was uh, this this partnership that we established with them. And so when he selected Kamala to be his running mate, we all just, you know, felt very touched by the by the move. Um, not only is she very talented in, you know, with her experience and her vision, uh, her ability to to uh, bring people together, but um, she is biracial. She is the first Black, first Asian American woman, woman of color, to be selected in that role. And it was a major earthquake for our community, right, that we could achieve that level of success and that level of uh, access. And for us, that's the American dream personified. Did you actually see or sense that earthquake after it happened? I mean, did you see things happening in the community? Did you get to experience the excitement and maybe the hope and there's probably other oh, yeah. adjectives that can describe what that would mean to um, the Asian American community. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it blew up social media. You know, a lot, many, many of our friends, and you know, we have uh, tight networks with one another in different communities. And and even though Kamala is um, is Indo-American, and you know, I'm Vietnamese American, um, I still feel a great sense of connection to her and her life story, her immigrant parents. Um, and all of that. And I take very great pride in this sort of umbrella categorization of Asian Americans. Um, but among my friends uh, who are South Asian, among my other my friends who uh, represent different communities of color, women of color, everyone was rejoicing. And it was just a moment where we felt uh, the 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 history, um, the historical impact of that decision. And, you know, for us, it was you know, earth shattering in many ways, because not only were we sort of trying to get visibility for our community all these years and all these election cycles, but now all of a sudden, all of that work, you know, sort of uh, culminated into sort of, you know, this this uh, this historic moment. And I will tell you, there were lots of tears flowing in various different households very close to mine and. And we were ecstatic. I mean, it was the talk of the town, talk of all the ethnic media channels. Uh, it was something that we all um, really understood, you know, sort of how profound it was. Yeah, I can feel that profoundness. I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that you're, you're with me to talk about that because it is very profound for a community. And um, wow, it's really beautiful um, kind of description of, of how it felt for so many people that you know. Yeah. Well, I think also it reverberated even outside of, you know, the, the communities I named earlier, because for so long we had experienced something under the Trump administration that made us feel 
uh, all of us that are the the notion of America being, you know, give me your, um, you know, uh, give me your, you know, that America becomes a refuge for immigrants. Yes. Um, I'm trying to remember the the phrase from give the me your tired, your poor. Yes. Yes. And and for all of us, we felt that that was under distress, you know, for so many years. And then what Kamala represents is sort of this notion of the promise of America. Mm -hmm, right. Mm -hmm. And so I think it touched so many people, regardless of whether you can relate to her ethnicity or not. Um, it was just this notion of, yes, America can be inclusive. We can celebrate a person of color, you know, from an immigrant background, you know, all of these things, and we can love her just the same, right? And in a way, the the, the glass ceiling that kind of kept Hillary Clinton from winning in 2016 um, was, you know, had a big, you know, humongous crack with Kamala Harris's uh, uh, nomination as well. So I, I think it, it has reverberations, you know, in many different corners of, of American society. You know, I had, I would say, similar feelings. It's different, but similar type of feelings. I watched the convention every night. I was determined to do it. And honestly, in many ways, I was transfixed. I was watching it on my computer. It was streaming, and it started. And there was so much moving. There was so much that was so um, moving about what we saw on that screen as compared to a live, very crowded, raucous convention in a big, big hall. We saw the faces of of diversity in this country. And yeah. it seemed like everyone had a chance to talk and they were recognized and they were respected. And that in itself was, um, I think, pretty monumental. Yeah, for some reason, I think that the virtual convention equalized you know, everyone, mm -hmm. right? Uh, every speaker, regardless of how yeah. much speaking time you had, it elevated them to the same platform as the keynote speaker. And I know what you mean, you know, in a live convention, uh, or, you know, I was fortunate this year, earlier this year to attend uh, a few of the uh, presidential debates, right? Sometimes the audio is wrong. Sometimes you have a bad vantage point. Sometimes, <laughs> you know, your neighbor's talking, <laughs> whatever the case may be. But sitting in your home watching with your family, whether on TV or on your computer, you can be 100% invested in the message, right, and the speaker. And, and then you can actually rewatch it, you know, which makes it beautiful because you're, you know, you may have missed, you know, someone or, or something uh, that people are talking about on Twitter. You can go back and watch it. Um, but, yeah, it, I think it, it brought you in closer than uh, a live experience would have, strangely enough. I right? think, yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And I think the Democrats hit the nail on the head in their production of this. They, they, I mean, they truly knew exactly what they do, they were doing, and they built up a case every single night. Yeah. No, I thought the the various themes of each evening mm -hmm. sort of built, yeah, upon the the next. And I think their lineup of speakers are very intentional. I appreciated the fact that they visually too they 
they were very representative of America. Um, you know, no sort of no uh, constituent group was overlooked. Um, I, I love the stories that they highlighted. They were very personal stories. People can relate to these stories and these people. Um, and then the, the the topics that they covered were very substantive. These are policy conversations, right? Even though it didn't sound like a policy conversation, mm. um, they were heavy, you know, policy conversations and things that we may be talking about, you know, at our kitchen table. So again, you think the um, Asian American community is going to really come out and vote that the combination yeah. of uh, Kamala Harris and also, I don't know how many of them watched any of the convention. Well, we had a watch party uh, yesterday, last night for for Joe Biden's nomination. And, um, you know, we had a great turnout uh, of that. But, you know, what we have to do, again, is normalize this conversation. Uh, uh, We among my obviously my circle friends, you know, they know and have become more politically engaged (laughs) because of their affiliation with me. But I can tell you that um, this year it's really made a lot of people uh, engage more um, and understand what's at stake uh, for our communities in particular. We've never been targeted in the way that we have during the Trump administration. Just earlier this year, a number of people from our community were deported back to Vietnam, um, even though uh, the U.S. and Vietnam have a repatriation agreement um, that says that Anyone who has arrived post-1975 cannot be uh, deported back to Vietnam. And the reason for that is many of us who were refugees fought with the U.S. during the war. And so that was the agreement that we had in place. And Trump reversed it. And so it was a, a direct betrayal you know, to our people and to our community to know that the U.S. has turned its back mm. on you know, our service and our allegiance to the U.S. during the war. And so that it's those types of things that are very symbolic and it will be front of mind when the election comes around. So are you saying then that those who did arrive uh, after 1975 had a lead? Yeah. Yeah, they wow. were they they are actively pursuing them for deportations. And it's over things like uh, it's gotcha things like, you know, um, when we came to the U.S., we had to fill out naturalization uh, paperwork. And for a lot of people, you know, when you flee from war as a refugee, you're not taking, you know, uh, documents with you. And so for a lot of people, they had to sort of guess, you know, uh, different information about um, and your birthdays and uh, so on and so forth, all kinds of different other information. What t- uh, what year did your family arrive? We arrived in seventy five, just uh, at the onset of the of the war, um, um, or at the end of the the war when when the South surrendered. But um, but yeah, like I, my family, for instance, there was uh, thirteen of us. You know, I was the, I'm the tenth child. My brother Peter was born oh, wow. uh, in the refugee camp, so there was eleven children plus my parents. So there was thirteen of us that came on the shores. And so um, my mom, I was like, you know, how do you remember everybody's information? <laughs> Poor woman, you know, she has to remember. <laughs> 11 birthdays. Wow. I, I have trouble sometimes with my two. <laughs> you know, I have to sit there and think about it. But, um, but you know, if you had made some kind of clerical error in your naturalization papers, the Trump administration now has made it a policy that they can cite that as an excuse for deporting uh, your family back uh, to your country of origin. And this is... Um, 
after families that have come here because they supported the U.S. Mm -hmm. during the war. And they risked their families and their lives to support the United States, you know, during the war. And so to us, that, that was a very blatant and direct betrayal. So those who arrived in 1975 who had to leave, they were here um, over 40 years. It's incredible. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, there's a lot of Vietnamese in our community in Albuquerque, and a lot of them, as I'm sure all over this country, they're very industrious. They've started their own businesses. So that means within the last four years they were deported. Yeah, as early as earlier this year, um, mm. you know, there was a series of them that um, that were deported. Um, and again, I think it's this idea of um, making uh, making the United States not a minority majority country, right? Mm -hmm. It's this notion of uh, uh, of white supremacy that underlies these types of policies. Um, and so, I think the Asian American community, for the most part. You know, when they come here, they have their heads down. They want to build a life here. They want to integrate into the community, contribute to the community uh, in a very positive manner, right? Because we know that we are always looked at as sort of foreigners in some respects. And so I think that's a survival tactic um, that's necessary for an immigrant community to survive and to thrive. Um, but over time, I think people are understanding that they need to uh, engage more, that they deserve to have a seat at the table, that they, their voices do matter. Um, and I think that's the generational shift that we're seeing. Um, you know, obviously the timeline is different for every ethnic group. You know, Chinese Americans have been here since the railroad, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, so there are many generations of Chinese Americans who are much more politically active. Um, and then there are South Asians, same thing. They've been here for generations. And so the Vietnamese community, uh, though they've been here for 40, year, 40 years, much less, you know, that we may have two, three, four, four at the most generations, you know, here in the United States. Um, and so with every community, uh, ethnic community, there is that, uh, you know, evolution of engagement. And so what we're hoping is we're hoping to be able to talk to these, um, have these conversations with uh, different generations and talk about their experiences and what they want, you know, for their children. I think that's the sort of the common goal, uh, the common thread amongst all of us, you know, regardless of, of who you are, if you're Asian American or not. I think the idea is that we want better for our kids. We want our kids to have, um, you know, a, a, an equitable opportunity to succeed. And we all want, you know, harmony. We want, we want community. We don't want divisiveness. And I I think that's what I saw uh, come through loud and clear at the Democratic Convention. Mm -hmm. Well, Katie, it's it's been great talking to you. I'm so glad that this worked out and great work that you're doing. So you're going to try to get the vote out like big time from the from the community, yes. right? <laughs> yes, yes. And, uh, you know, we're also hoping to bring language access help at the polls, we're mm -hmm. helping, you know, to make sure that people feel if they were turned away, that there's someone that they can go to, um, you know, that, that can champion uh, them at the at the polls. Um, we're also getting information out uh, like voter guides and things like that in language um, to our communities. So there's so much work. If you can imagine the multitude of languages that we have to cover as Asian Americans, oh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> we have we have our work cut out for us. <laughs> yeah, but but you can do it, and also information about the various ways that they can vote. Yes, absolutely. You know, and this is you know right now we we have. Uh, 
managed to be able to do all of this uh, with the generosity of the public you know, to support us. Um, and so we could always use more and, um, and volunteers as well. So check us out, you know, on our website and, um, and, you know, come join us because this is not just about Asian American uh, empowerment, but it's really about building uh, an inclusive America where we can all work together and, and sort of build those coalitions for success. Okay. This is your opportunity to give your web address. Okay, it's the AAPIVictoryFund.com. Okay, that's really great. So thanks so much, Katie. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. That's Yeji, Y-A-E-J-I, a young Korean-American singer with a song called One More. That followed my interview with Katie Calvota, a Vietnamese-American with the Asian-American Pacific Islanders group. I'm Carol Boss. This is Women's Focus. Coming up later, a conversation with Laura E. Gomez. We'll talk about her new book, Inventing Latinos, a new story of American racism. I want to remind you, at KUNM.org, you can find our two-week archives, which gives you a couple of weeks to check out a program you want to hear or maybe listen to again. Right now, coming up is my interview with Suzanne Sabarge from 516 Arts about their new exhibit, Radical Reimaginings. As all of us know, our lives have been turned around and upside down in this time of the pandemic. So many things and places that are important to us have been changed, closed, canceled. Our restaurants, movie theaters, live theater, live concerts, and so much more. Every day my heart would sink when I would think of one or another place or event that was no longer available for us to go to. However, not all has been lost or disappeared. And I remember early on, several months ago, when all of this began, the pandemic, that is, when I happened to see online this one sentence, which read, take a virtual tour of these 12 amazing museums. And I thought, really? But there it was, tours of some of the great museums in New York City, as, as well as from around the world, right there on our screen for all of us to view and see these exhibits, even though the physical buildings have been closed. For many of us, museums are a refuge of calm and contemplation, and I would venture to guess, more needed than ever. So this was all quite extraordinary, and now has become very common. It's almost as if there are no limits as to, as to where we can visit and be virtually. Live streaming has opened things for us, also including concerts we can see and hear in our homes. So with all of that said, I want to introduce you to my first guest this afternoon. Many of you know 516 Arts in downtown Albuquerque. They are a contemporary art museum with exhibits and associated programming that always includes collaborations within our community and beyond. Their doors, which face onto Central Avenue, are closed too, but their exhibits present and down the road are accessible to us. Their newest exhibit has a virtual reception coming up. Actually, though, it will have happened by the time you hear this program, and right now, as you hear me, the exhibit will be on view at their Museum from Home site, which we'll give more information about later on. The new exhibit is called Radical Reimaginings, which I'm excited to talk about today. Joining me is Suzanne Sabarge, Executive Director of 516 Arts. Hi, Suzanne. Good morning to you. 
Okay. And from her home in Washington, D.C., Lori Ivy Alexander, an artist whose work is included in this, in this exhibit. Lori, thanks for doing this today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad to talk about this. I was excited when I read about this exhibit. And I actually contacted Suzanne right away and said, I want to do an interview on this. So here we are. So Suzanne, if you can just tell us um, about Radical Reimaginings, what are the origins of this exhibit? Well, you know, during the time of the pandemic, we we've had to postpone some of our exhibitions. So actually this summer we were planning to host an exhibition called Dust Specks on the Sea, uh, contemporary sculpture from the French Caribbean and Haiti. And we were super excited to host that and had to postpone it. So now that'll be in the spring of 2021. But we, we basically started putting our heads together about what could we do in a short time frame that would help um, artists feel connected not only locally, but nationally and internationally. And, you know, I fell upon my favorite medium, which is collage, as I'm a collage artist myself. And I thought uh, back to going to the first uh, international collage fest, which took place in New Orleans a couple of years ago. And at that event, I met so many artists from around the world and also connected with the organizer, um, Rick Cassini Kador, and he um, he does so many different kinds of things in collage. So we started this dialogue about co-curating an exhibition and making it invitational, and kind of pulling from both of our networks, and um, and that's how it came about. I'm going to ask you um, to say a few words, and then I'm going to jump to Lori. Why collage, and what is collage? I think I think there are probably listeners who have without meaning any insult, you know, maybe a simple image of what a collage is, like a lot of us did collages when we were in elementary school. Yeah, well, those those are collages as well, but basically it's it involves cutting and pasting, and personally I focus on analog collage, which is non-digital. It's using scissors and glue and paper. But some of the works in the in the exhibition, there are a few digital collages as well. But it's basically combining disparate elements to create something new. And it's an incredible metaphor for sort of destroying and rebuilding. Um, and it just that it seemed like a perfect fit for this time period where we're really having to take things apart and things are falling apart and we have to think mm-hmm. about intentionally how we want to put them back together and that's really what collage is all about so when you say there are artists who have done pieces that are digitally that means totally done online or totally done with program nerbas who's an albuquerque artist who's known for painting more than collage she uses digital collages on does collage work on the computer that inform her paintings so all of the artists featured in the show and the catalog um use collage in an integral way in their art practice. So, Lori, would you consider yourself a collagist? I am, absolutely. Um, It's interesting that you mention, you know, artists who um, work primarily in painting because um, I would say that my practice um, really varies, right? I include collage as a prominent um, component of my work in my paintings as well as in the works that are strictly collage. Um, and vice versa. My, my collages oftentimes include painting components. 
Um, but certainly, you know, I'm a collagist at heart because those are my, my foundation, I think, uh, of my work is collaborative, is, is finding projects and, you know, and, and pieces and putting them together. Well, did you start out painting at all, or how did um, collage become your medium? Because I think that sounds like what you mostly do. So um, I would say that most of what I do is painting. Um, but oh, okay. collage, I, I think of my work, so even my paintings, I think of as collages, and I oftentimes talk about that in, um, in my artist talks because of the way that I think about paint and the way that I am um, layering the work and combining you know, different elements, um, as well as incorporating found objects. Um, but I studied painting in undergrad. Um, both of my parents were artists, so I've been painting and making, you know, I've been making art, I would say, for pretty much most of my life. Um, but my favorite, like my, my favorite, favorite painters and, and um, artists have collage at their, at the core of their practices. So, um that's part of why I think of my work as being, you know, collage-based, even when I'm not um, physically cutting paper um, and making a traditional collage. Are there artists that you think that are pretty well-known? That's a hard one, like who's well-known and to who, but that people's names that people might recognize out there in the world who work in, with collage? Yeah, I mean, there are tons of them. I mean, one of them is actually in this show, which I'm so excited about, um, Lorna Simpson. And she does a lot of different kinds of work, but her collage work is just astonishing to me. I've, I've loved her work forever, so I'm really excited that her studio responded and she has uh, three works in the exhibition and catalog. Were you going to say something, uh, Lori? Or no? No, I would, ag- I would agree with that. I was going to say that... Um, I think that one of the artists that people don't think of as a collagist but um, had a lot of collage elements in his work would be Matisse, right, um, with the um, the cutouts and painting and, you know, um, reconstructing um, images um, with cut paper. Um, but those elements are, you know, are collage in, even if he didn't consider what he was doing collage. And then, of course, Romare Bearden, we can't, you know, we kind of can't think of modern collage without remembering um, the work that he was doing, particularly for the work that I'm doing within the, within the um, reimagining African-American stories and um, working in that, in that tradition as Let, well. Let's talk about the title, Radical Reimaginings. Uh, I'm really drawn to titles. I mean, titles that really kind of stimulate me. And this is one of them, Radical Reimaginings. So I want to ask both of you, let's start with Suzanne. In naming this project and thinking about what you wanted to do, can you talk about reimaginings and how that fits into what you've created, the um, exhibit? Yeah. Well, I think of this time we're in as a radically... uh, changing time and it's a time for thinking radically and reimagining um, the stories we've been told and what we imagine for the future and one thing about the collage medium it's always been very affordable and democratic in its means so it really has a history of contributing to activism and inspiring new ideas so we came up with the title radical reimaginings in the spirit of 
the radical qualities of combining images and, um, you know, as a way to examine how consciousness is changing, both on like a personal and a collective level. Lori, do you have anything that you want to add to what um, Suzanne just said? Well, I, I thought that it was interesting that you mentioned, you know, being drawn in by um, by titles because the reason that I participated in the show was, you know, was that, that title. It just immediately sparked something for me, um, in part because that's really what all my work is about, right? It's, it's telling the stories of my people um, and retelling stories that have been told before, but through my own lens. Um, Oftentimes, I use the titles of my work um, in order to articulate that that reimagination element um, that uh, that that it, that I'm trying to convey. So I was excited to see um, an organization thinking about the world right through the lens of breaking existing images down and rebuilding them. And I think that that's really, you know, as, um, as Suzanne said, it really is at the heart of collage art. Um, but images in particular, at this moment, we're being bombarded with physical images, you know, television, um, internet, you know, social media, we are just assaulted almost with images. And so to take, uh, you know, to be able to take images break them apart and put them back together through our own, you know, through our own lens. It's just a really empowering thing. And, and I think it, it does, um, it gives me a lot of hope and excitement um, for this moment, especially in a moment of, you know, sort of chaos and, and uh, uncertainty. Yeah, it gives us a chance to retell stories and really take things back. It's a, it's a remarkable medium in that, it gives you the chance to retell the narrative. This is Women's Focus that you're in tune to right here at KUNM. My name is Carol Boss, and my guests this afternoon are Suzanne Sabarts, who's the executive director of 516 Arts, and Lori Ivy Alexander from Washington, D.C., who is one of the artists in the exhibit. Lori, can you expand or expound more on what you mentioned about the retelling of stories in the work that you do and the meaning of it for you? Sure. Um, my work, all of my work, all of my, all of my art, um, whether it's collage based or not, um, is focused on um, examining and um, rearticulating the stories of African-American people and native American people. Um, I oftentimes reference um, the idea of, of just telling stories that have not been told, um, honoring people who um, have been left out of their own stories. And so that's always an undercurrent um, in, in my work. And the collage medium itself, I mean, physically cutting paper and, you know, assembling objects um, generally onto paper is a great way of, you know, breaking down images that are, being oftentimes mass produced, right? So we have, you know, magazines and advertisements um, that are constantly being, you know, thrown in our faces and are telling us stories about ourselves that either we recognize as not being true or that we don't recognize as not being true because we've been told them so many times. 
And so I think of, um, you know, my work, again, across the spectrum, because I do work in a lot of different media, um, I think of it as taking those stories and either rearticulating them in a, in a more truthful or, you know, at least from my perspective, right, whether or not my, whether or not my view is the right one, um, or telling them, you know, anew for the first time. Um, and that's always, you know, that's, that's just part of, part of what I'm doing. And that's, that's why I'm here, I think, um, as an artist. Um, and also why collage in particular speaks so, you know, speaks to me. Would you be able to give um, an example of one of your pieces? Uh, sure. Without, so without us seeing it. That, yes. Obviously. Um, so one of the pieces that... <laughs> One of the pieces that's in this show is, um, let me just see what it's called. So um, I did a series recently um, that focuses on black women's bodies taking up space. Um, so often we're, you know, given permission um, to, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of allowed the opportunities for education and all of these different sort of peripheral opportunities. But when black women build themselves up and are, um, actually assertive and actually, you know, um, commanding of their own space and the respect that their various accomplishments and, you know, sort of having climbed the either career ladder or, you know, whatever that particular, um, you know, situation is, we're oftentimes shut down, right? And, and I think that that, in addition to just having grown up, you know, as brown women, we're often... Un, un, either unsure of or unable to take up both physical space and um, to be, be give ourselves permission to, you know, be okay with being in people's minds and in people's, um, not necessarily in their faces, but being, you know, as large as we are, right, as, as commanding and as um, deserving of the space that we, that we occupy. Um, so one of the pieces is um, called For Formidable Woman, That's Me. Um, and it physically is, and this, this whole set of collages um, are taken from full sheet, either advertisements or, um, or um, editorial, you know, photographs. Um, and over top of typically either a male body or a white woman's body, um, I have either given, you know, the body a black woman's face or components of a black woman's face because they're, you know, obviously they're, they're cut paper um, or otherwise um, basically told the story through, you know, the lens of a black woman taking up space. So this particular one um, is sort of a, almost like she, she's wearing a, um, <laughs> I, I would describe it as an unidentified flying object uh, <laughs> shape. Uh, as her, you know, as her clothing, and and she's adorned in in gold. And um, if you see it up close, there are actually um, fibers that are on the, you know, on the surface of the paper. So it has an iridescence. And I think there's a certain amount of um, of sacredness, or of um, you know, there's something special about this physical image. Um, and it really is to convey that she is, you know, she's coming into her own and being able to literally take up the space that she's meant to occupy. 
Yeah, thanks for that vivid description. So, Suzanne, can we assume that it's correct in what I said in my introduction that when people are listening to this, uh, the show will be, the exhibit will be up on your site? Yes, it starts uh, August 22nd, and it'll be up through December 31st, and then it'll be archived, so it'll always be available on the site. But, um, yeah, it'll be up for many months, and then basically you can order the catalog as well, and that is a beautiful publication that has all of the images in the exhibition in it, as well as a terrific essay by the co-curator, Rick Cassini-Cador, and the show features artists from nine countries and several indigenous nations, um, including, let's see, there are artists from Chile, Colombia, Mexico, Peru, Argentina, Canada, France, Germany, and um, Metis Cree, Choban, Oglala, Loka, uh, Lakota, Tlingit, Niscot, and uh, Seneca Nations. So it's a really... Uh, wonderful compilation of a lot of different perspectives. That was part of our goal to really expand out and bring a lot of voices to the forefront through the collage medium. Is this um, the response from people all over the world, literally? Is that a, um, an indication of um, the um, respect that and the respect that 516 Arts has around the world with artists? Well, it wasn't an open call. It was invitational. Oh, that's right. Um, it was invitational. Yeah. yeah. So we worked with our network, people in our own community. We have a lot of artists in the show from Albuquerque, which is exciting to be able to showcase Albuquerque in the center of all, all this right now. But um, we worked with Collage Magazine, that's K-O-L-A-J, and Collage Institute and their network, which is more international than, than we are in some ways. And then we also worked with an artist who's in the show, uh, Kike Congrains from Peru. And he's a real leader in the movement in Latin America. So he brought about 10 artists to this group as well. And, um, and we've been, some of the online events have already started and people have been dialing, for, dialing in from all over the world. It's, it's really great. It's created an international dialogue. That's fantastic. And that's part of what you want to do is connecting people yeah. in that way. Yeah, and it all happens through partnerships. Like, we can't do it alone. Exactly. So when we team up, team up with other arts organizations and ask artists for their ideas, that's, that's what makes, that's what gives it its secret sauce and makes it, makes it gel. Mm-hmm. Your catalogs, 516 catalogs for their shows are absolutely exquisite. I have to oh, say that. thank them. you. Really beautiful, really comprehensive. There's always... You know, I think there's almost always essays, and it's it's really great. And I yeah, did. I, Go ahead. Thank you. I um I really believe in publishing. I know now that so much is online; fewer and fewer people are publishing in print. But I really believe that's what lives on. Like everything online can just evaporate, you know. And um, having a book or catalog with interpretive text and artists speaking in their own voices and images. I just feel like that's so valuable because it keeps it alive into the future and makes it all less transitory. This is Women's Focus. We'll return momentarily with my conversation with Suzanne Sabarge of 516 Arts. 
We're required to take a one-minute break at the top of the hour. You, too, can take a break, but it has to be really short, less than a minute. We don't want you to miss anything. Also coming up, my interview with Laura E. Gomez, author of Inventing Latinos, a new story of American race. We'll be back in a flash at 1 o'clock. P.S. Thanks for spending your Saturday with us. KUNM is continuing with the Green Giving fundraising initiative to ask for your support. Traditionally, KUNM spends a ton of money and uses a lot of paper sending out multiple fundraising letters to your door. But with KUNM Green Giving, we're reaching out to you by email to ask for your donation. This will increase the support that goes directly to the programming you love and decrease the station's environmental impact, meaning less waste in our landfill. Check your inbox for the KUNM Green Giving email or donate today at KUNM.org. Broadcasting from the University of New Mexico, this is KUNM and KUNM HD, 89.9 Albuquerque, Santa Fe, KBOM, 88.7 Socorro, KRAR, 91.9 Española, KRRT, 90.9 Arroyo Seco Taos, KRRE, 91.9 Las Vegas. We're online at KUNM.org. Carol Boss here, returning to my interview with Suzanne Sabars from 516 Arts and Washington, D.C. artist Lori Ivy Alexander. So, Lori, I know you're an attorney in D.C., so I'm curious how and if being an attorney, which is a big part of your life, along with being an artist, which is a big part of your life, if, that, if they weave together somehow. For sure. Um, I think of, you know, I, I, I think of myself as being an artist and, uh, you know, at my core, right? I am an artist at all times. I see the world through a creative lens. Um, and I believe that, that um, first of all, that, that attorney work, that being, that lawyering is itself creative work. Um, you know, the, 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 at the core of that job is, being a creative writer and being able to understand language and understand how language works um, and to make that language work for, you know, for your client or, you know, in my case, um, you know, working for, um, for the, the government, for, for the, the people. Um, but um, within my day to day, I think that, you know, I bring the ability to see the world differently um, from, you know, every old body. And part of that is just because of who I am, right? We all have our own, you know, we all have our own story and we all have had different experiences, but I do believe that just having, you know, taking on, um, the responsibility of, of interpreting the world, 
um, and actively engaging with it. I believe that that is part, you know, that's what being an artist in, in large part is, right? It's taking on this, um, taking on this banner that, um, that allows us and requires us to um, evaluate and be critical of things and, um, and also to um, offer back our own sort of commentary. I believe that that absolutely influences how I see, um, how I see lawyering, um, as well as how I mentor um, up and coming attorneys and, um, and, you know, others in the legal, in the legal field. Um, but I also use the law, literally, you know, physical <laughs> printouts of the Constitution and, you know, other um, elements in my work. Um, and um, I think that, you know, my love of and um, fascination with understanding how American law works um, influences the choices that I make in the paint, you know, in the stories that I tell in my paintings, because again, um, I'm interested in the stories of um, African American and Native American people, and um, there are no stories in this country that are about Black and um, Indigenous people that are not um, influenced by, or even, um, you know, the law is sort of on our skin. It's really. So deep, we're so deeply ingrained in this, you know, it, it, the ways in which um, America has tried to um, to prescribe our place, to even allow, quote unquote, allow us to exist. We can't separate ourselves from um, from the law, and yeah, and so. So for sure, it's the answer. <laughs> <laughs> I want to just read um, a couple of lines from the essay and see what you think about it. The work of destruction inherent in reimagination is already taking place in social relationships, economic structures, political alliances, and communal life. To not seize this moment and begin the work of reimagination is to give into ruination, to seed hope. If reimagination experts were such a thing, you would find them among collage artists. Suzanne here. I um, also love that quote um, because I think collage is a great way of just blowing things open. And we've talked a lot about narrative and retelling stories and, um, you know, that the whole narrative that, we can reimagine through collage, but there's also a lot of artists working with abstraction and um, and basically using this this cutting apart and rebuilding, reassembling as a way to blow things wide open. And I just think that's what that's what's happening now in our systems of government and and all of the. Uh, all of the issues we're dealing with that are so apparent and at the forefront of our lives um, are be issues are just blown wide open and they're exposed. And so I, I think that the artists working with abstraction are also a fascinating way to look at how things, how, how space is just opened up. If you could see me, I was shaking my head like, yes, very fervently. So the um, exhibit online 
are essentially photographs of everyone's work? Yes. And each artist has anywhere from one to three images. Most of them have two images and some words. Each of the artists were asked to respond very briefly with a quote that starts with, I want to reimagine. And so most of the artists have given reimagining statements as well. And um, so the exhibition can be viewed online at 516arts.org slash radical reimaginings, which is also part of our museum from home. And, um, and then the book can be ordered at our website as well, 516arts.org slash store. And it's a affordable paperback that has so much content and inspiring imagery and text. So um, I encourage folks to pick up the catalog as well. And then throughout the season, we have events going on in conjunction with the show. The next event is Thursday, September 24th. And Lori is also going to be speaking on that. It's a Women in Collage Roundtable. And it's co-presented by Collage Institute and 516 Arts. And um, it features, um, let's see, Four, or five, five, four artists from different parts of the country as well as from Spain and Canada who will be talking about their collage practices and exploring the medium and what it means to, to women in redefining art and reshaping what it means to be an artist. Well, that sounds really exciting. That's great yeah, that so you're going to do that, um, Lori. Yeah, that's online and yeah, everybody um, can sign up. It's just uh, 516.org slash event registration. Uh, Suzanne, you, I can imagine that probably when we're in March already, or maybe a little bit before, wondering what's going to happen, for the, at least in the near future, for 516 Arts, as a lot of people were wondering about their businesses and their enterprises. And it's so amazing because it sort of got all blown apart. And and just the act of what you've been, I was just thinking about this, the act of what you did along with your other associates at 516 Arts, that in itself is a reimagining. It is. You know, I often think about collage with the arts organizing work that I do, that it's about bringing together all these disparate parts to try to create something new and be sort of a portal for people to, um, ex- you know, experience a new space and a new way of thinking and it's it's definitely mind expanding what we do we we jump into these projects without knowing what the end result will be and then there's this sort of open um, intuitive process where different people contribute to that with their ideas and I don't know there's some kind of magic in that process of um, collaboration and pulling together disparate um, elements and ideas Reimaginings are magic. <laughs> yeah. So what is it like to have a virtual opening of an art exhibit? It's it's a strange space to be in, for sure, but I and I know a lot of people resist being online more and it's it's definitely not as appealing as being together in person, but it's not bad. I mean, I've actually had some really inspiring experiences on Zoom. So it's just a different way of interacting, but it I'm just grateful that there's a way to be together and share art even in these strange times and knowing that it's temporary, but um, there's something kind of precious about it anyway when, when we can be together 
at all right now. It's really good to talk to both of you, and I'm so glad that you're doing this exciting work, Suzanne, as always, and it hasn't stopped you and your colleagues, and yeah, it's going to be there for people to see, just in a different way. Yeah, and I hope it'll inspire more people to experiment with the with the collage medium. You know, it's something every every anybody can do, any age. It's great with kids and with people who don't think they're artists or can be artists. It's a medium that everybody can play with. There's a lot of um, well, play is a big part of it, and um, and having fun. A lot of the collage process, you know, I'm part of a collage group and I've taught a lot of collage workshops. People start laughing when they're making collages. And then there are these moments where people are realizing things and going, wow, oh, oh my God. And then they crack up laughing. And it's, it's just a really fun, accessible process that sort of opens your mind. And there's a lot of humor in it as well as, um, sort of political power, I would say. It's, you know, such an activist tool in many different countries. So um, I encourage folks to engage, learn more about it, and just enjoy it and have fun. I'm talking with Lori Ivy Alexander, who, as you have heard, is from Washington, D.C., and who is one of the artists in the new exhibit, Radical Imaginings, and Suzanne Sabarge, Executive Director of 516 Arts. Again, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today, and lots of luck with all your ongoing endeavors. They're all pretty exciting. Thank you so much, Carol. Okay. Thank you for having us. There's a new book out this month, Inventing Latinos, A New Story of American Racism, and it's published by The New Press. The author is Laura E. Gomez. She's a professor of law, sociology, and Chicana Chicano studies at UCLA, and the co-founder and faculty director of the Critical Race Studies Program, also at UCLA. She's a graduate of Harvard and Stanford. She, she was the first Mexican-American woman to hold both a Ph.D. and a law degree. And she's also the author of Manifest Destinies, The Making of the Mexican-American Race. Laura E. Gomez joins me today by phone to talk about her new book, which is getting a lot of attention. And I welcome her and just found out just before we started recording that she is actually from New Mexico, which is such a wonderful surprise for me because I had no idea and is even familiar with the show Women's Focus. So welcome and um, many congratulations on the new book. Thank you for that lovely introduction. I'm delighted to be here and to be listening to uh, friends and uh, friends to be in New Mexico. Oh, great. That's that's really fun. You know, um, Laura, I would think this is a book that has been long in the making, and it's much. And I'm assuming it's much related to the work and the research you do. Was there a point where you believed this is the time? for this book, and it needs to be completed and published. In fact, did you feel an oh, urgency wow. about it at all? That's a, that is such a great question, and nobody has asked me that yet, Carol. Um, so this book actually has a long and winding uh, road kind of a history. Um, I signed the book contract with the New Press in 2012, and that was actually right after I returned to UCLA after having taught at UNM for, for several years. Um, and so it was just a kind of interesting time. I was looking for a new book project, and 
um, you know, I pitched it to them, and they were very interested. And then the following year, I became vice dean of the law school, and then a couple years later, I became interim dean of the Division of Social Sciences, which is the largest academic unit at UCLA. And then I finally had a sabbatical, and by now, it's 2018. And I'm beginning to feel that urgency that you asked about because of uh, President Trump having been elected and having, you know, been elected, uh, campaigned, and then carried through on this anti-Mexican and anti-immigrant and, you know, anti-so-many-things uh, agenda, right? So I'm feeling the urgency, and I have this this entire calendar year off to write, and lo and behold, I have a writer's block. And um, I also have a number of other things going on that uh, we don't we don't need to go into here. But it just is like the most frustrating year ever because I can't, you know, I've have uh, done all this research and I feel like I'm I should be ready to write, but the book is not coming. And I actually thought maybe this book is not going to come. You know, maybe this is not meant to be. Um, and then in 2019, um, I just I just got the energy back. I just got the excitement back and the passion back. And again, I think I think it was the things continuing to happen. And you know, the I'm thinking about like the separation of families at the border, and uh, just just so many things that were I don't know just. In propelling me forward that this story needed to be told about where Latinos fit in the in the racial hierarchy and about the lack of knowledge about Latinos that so many folks have. In particular, I have to say the East Coast media and publishing establishment who controls so much of, of our discourse. So um, I think that that finally the momentum came, and then in the end, the book was written really quickly uh, between uh, really, really in, in 2019, um, in the midst of a lot of other projects and teaching assignments and so forth. So it, it when it came, it came like a, a flood, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that speaks exactly to the kind of urgency you're you're right. um, hinting at. So there's surely a lot of conversation about racism now, although it's been framed oh, over the last few months within the context of Black Lives Matter. Would you consider these, um, how would I put it, would you consider these exclusionary conversations? Not at all, not at all. I think that it's, even before uh, the tragic murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, um, Black Lives Matter was was very much on the scene and very much on my mind, right? And so, you know, I've I've always been about in my in my work and and my teaching um, bringing those two conversations together, right? How do we think about, you know, how do we think about African American um, racism and subordination? racism against African-Americans, and then how do we think about where Mexican-Americans and other Latinos fit in that story? Um, so I think that they're, 
they should be talked about together. And not to not to not to forget to say, and this is very important, Carol, that there are also black Latinos, right? So we don't want to we don't want to make the mistake of just talking about, oh, there's African Americans over here and there's Latinos over here because there are many you know, who identify as, as being in both groups because of the, the long history of, um, of Spanish colonialism and slavery in the Americas and then American imperialism and so forth. So, so I, I think that the conversation is very much, you know, I obviously when I finished the book, uh, I finished the final edits in February, I, we couldn't have anticipated what, what happened with either the pandemic or this summer of, mm-hmm. I think, rage and, and uh, I think, uh, you know, kind of, it's not only rage, it's also kind of, I think, for many people, been a time of deep kind of thought and engagement with this, this legacy, the, the, the contemporary legacy of, of slavery and Jim Crow and, and how we can begin to make amends for that um, at a institutional and national level. You know, um, I'm going to bring in something that uh, took me by surprise just because I knew I was going interview, to interview you today. And it was a front-page story in Albuquerque's own Albuquerque Journal. It was an uh, Associated Press story. And mm-hmm. the title was Activists colon, police killing of Latinos go unnoticed, underscoring racial history. And it goes on to talk about something that actually happened in New Mexico. And mm-hmm. just a little while back, it was in fact right before George Floyd was murdered. And mm-hmm. it was about this fellow named Antonio Valenzuela, who um, was stopped by police. And um, they essentially did something very similar, like asphyxiating him, and he was killed. Mm-hmm. So, but this go this article goes on to talk about that the rate of Hispanic deaths in police custody are the second highest after blacks, and I didn't realize this. And this incident took place in Las Cruces, and you know Las Cruces. You know, it talks about the lack of attention around account encounters that go wrong between Latinos and police and a real lack of knowledge among the general population about Latino history in the U.S. and Mm -hmm. racism that has endured in our American Southwest. One guy was quoted as saying, it's like they don't care about Latinos and the racism that we face. And I was surprised to learn that New Mexico has per million the highest rate of police killings. So this brought to me the local aspect, but also um, part of the larger picture of what you're talking about, about racism and Latinos not being recognized sometimes as a, as a race. I don't know if you, you probably didn't hear of this article because it was just released today. No, but I'm going to look for it. And if it's an AP article, it might be yes. in, I, I haven't, it's, you know, it's an hour earlier here, so I just haven't, mm-hmm. haven't looked at the at the news yet, but I'm, I'm going to look for it. Um, 
Russell Contreras is a great AP uh, reporter who's writing on a lot of these issues. That's who wrote it, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I'm, it has his, has his fingerprints just from uh, hearing your description. It, it's an incredibly, um, I mean, this is, in many ways, this is, this is what the book is about. But I want to begin with a caveat of sorts. I think that there's a there's a possibility in making the point, and the, the quote that you read sort of suggests this, um, there's a possibility of devolving quickly on this, on this question that you've asked, a really critical question. Um, there's a possibility of devolving into a kind of who has it worse, you know, kind of discussion, right? Some people call this the oppression Olympics, you know, um, hmm. And I think I, I, that's my caveat, that I don't want to get into that, because I think that that is, in a way, the kind of distraction that prevents the real pressure on white supremacy and on white-dominated institutions that, that, that is needed, which really has to be a coalition right, of people demanding that. So so that's the first thing uh, that I want to put out there. But um, it, it is absolutely the case that there is an under, an undercounting of Latino deaths in custody and Latino arrests and an under-awareness um, and in my opinion, in my opinion, that stems from the fact that we have, we, we today, we inconsistently across the United States count Latinos. We inconsistently identify Latinos. And that, in turn, comes from this longer history that I talk about in inventing inventing Latinos, which is the the kind of in-betweenness of where Latinos fit. And we can see this very vividly in New Mexico history, um, uh, you know, from, from the end of um, the U.S.-Mexico War in 1846 up through statehood, but also in the 20th century, um, something that I call the the uh, quest for whiteness. In fact, the third chapter of the book is entitled The Elusive Quest for Whiteness, right? And so this this notion that um, because Latinos have some Spanish ancestry that they had this claim on whiteness, and that in a way that that was a shield for discrimination, and that was, you know, to say that we were white, even if it was with a, you know, with a wink, even if it was white saying Latinos are white with a wink, Latinos were able to say we're not black, right? And so that kind of in-betweenness and, and, and being, a, being a buffer group between blacks below and whites above led to this history of not distinctively counting Latinos. Um, and and so you look at states and you look at police departments, local police departments and state um, attorney general offices and criminal justice 
you know, data collection and you look at federal, and there's lots of inconsistencies. And um, there's a definitely a problem with undercounting and and how we you know how we identify and respond to this and some of that is because of latinos themselves insisting that they should be counted as as white and not not singled out so that's a that's a long answer to a really important question and well, you know we can we can talk more about it well that certainly ties in with the census the us census Yes, exactly, and I'm so glad that you that you mentioned that. And I was kind of going to go on to that, but I wanted to see where you wanted to take it. So the fourth chapter is entitled "To Count, We Must Be Counted," and it's all about the history of of undercounting and not counting and miscounting Latinos, and brings us upright to all the controversies of 2020. And something that that is also related to the the police um, data that you're bringing up, Carol, is the pandemic data, right? So all mm-hmm. of the data shows that Latinos nationally are being disproportionately infected with the virus and dying of the virus. But I will sub- I would submit that there's actually undercounts going on there because of these same dynamics. And so to put a finer point on it, the way that we count, for example, the way that we count um, deaths uh, from COVID is funeral directors are actually the ones who, who fill out um, race and ethnicity. And the question format that the funeral directors have, and this is governed by national requirements, models the way that the census is. And all of us have filled out the census. Well, I hope that your listeners have filled out the census. And if they haven't, I hope that they will. Um, we filled it out recently, so maybe it's fresher in your mind. But there's two questions. There's one question that says, is this person Hispanic slash Latino, or are you Hispanic slash Latino, right, because you're filling out the census for yourself and your household? Um, and then there's a separate question that says, you know, what is this person's race, right? And that list of races does not include Latino. So because of that, you end up getting these this data, for example, which is somebody checks, yes, they are Hispanic, and then on the race question checks that they're white. So among Mexican-Americans, um, I think that's about 35 or 40 percent who, who would say, you know, that their, their race is um, white on the census and that they're Latino. Well, that ambiguity, the funeral director is dealing with that kind of an ambiguity and trying to decide where to classify people. Now, in places like Albuquerque and Los Angeles, it might not make that big of a difference because there there's very large Latino populations. Funeral directors know that, you know, uh, Latinos come in all colors and uh, and shapes, and, and they know where to identify them and how to identify them, perhaps. But in jurisdictions like um, the South and the Dakotas and some of the Midwest, where there was the highest growth um, in the Latino population in the country, percentage-wise, between 2000 and 2010, those we don't really know what's happening with that data, so there may well be an undercount. Mm-hmm. 
There's a lot of confusion, I think, with um, a lot of people as the difference between race and ethnicity. Do you think? Yes, yes. So, so you know, and this is something that I... I talk about in in this book and I also spoke a lot about in Manifest Destinies which is really a history of of New Mexico um in in so in you know my training is as so I have a law degree and I have a PhD in sociology and my so in sociology we talk about ethnicity as being the um the chosen um the chosen group, right? So you're Italian-American and you choose to um, belong to an organization of Italian-American genealogy or you choose to, um, you know, have an Italian celebration for Christmas Eve every year. Um, whereas we think of the, the racial group, and again, I'm talking here about the standard interpretation among sociologists, we think of the the racial group as something that you do not choose. The people put you in a category, right? So, but but you know that that distinction I think has really broken down somewhat. And this is this is related to another point about the census. Up until 1970, people didn't get to quote unquote self identify on the census. And that's what we consider, we take that for granted in the 21st century in the U.S., that we decide what our race is, right? And we, so, so that distinction is not as, as strong as it was historically. So prior to 1970, there were enumerators hired by the census, and they would go to every household and they'd knock on the door, and they weren't asking people what their race was they were categorizing people based on what they saw, um, looking at them and making judgments about maybe even the neighborhood that they lived in, if they were ambiguous visually, etc. Right. But this movement of self-identification is very much, um, it's very much related to a, another idea about race that is the social construction of race. And, here I'm probably getting too into the weeds, but the the point that I would make is that race and ethnicity are not necessarily that different, and both both of them have the dimension of our choosing, our self identification, but our choices are constrained by how society um, how society identifies people. Right, so it's not uncommon for people who look like me to go somewhere in Los Angeles and be spoken to in Spanish and assumed that I am a, 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 even a monolingual Spanish speaker, right, because of the way I look. Um, so I, I could choose to say, you know, I'm multi-generation, uh, born in the U.S. And, 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 and many more than, you know, generations uh, in New Mexico, et cetera, but that's not on, on one web. By, through one grandparent, but that's not um, that's not going to be recognized necessarily by others in all settings, right? 
Um, so, so that's kind of the the dynamic that I I tease out. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of uh, this is I can hear um, and the voice inside of me. Carol is saying, "You're talking too long. Stop talking and let Carol ask another question." So I, I will ask another question, but I do want to say this is Women's Focus. If you just tuned in, my name is Carol Boss, and my guest this afternoon is Laura E. Gomez. And she's a professor of law, sociology, and Chicana, Chicano studies at UCLA, and the author of the brand new book, just came out this month, Inventing Latinos, A New Story of American Racism. While you were talking a little bit ago, I was wondering, because I realized I don't know the answer to this, um, what basically was the origin of race? Do you know? Well, the origin of race, the 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 analysis that I um, that I believe, and obviously these things are contested, right? But the origin of race is really with colonialism. So when Europeans um, start going to places of the world and and quote unquote discovering those places, by which they mean encountering these indigenous peoples and and uh, life ways that they did not know about, right? They, and and they start looting, basically, right? Uh, taking things from these places and taking them back to Europe. Um, when that process starts, there is a need to differentiate themselves from others. And uh, there was always, you know tribal differentiation in Europe, right? We can look at that going way back. But the idea that that race um, that race uh, exists was really a way to justify slavery of African peoples who were kidnapped or sold by those who had kidnapped them in Africa and then taken to the New World. And um, and also to justify the the genocide and the uh, uh, mistreatment and uh, enslavement as well of indigenous peoples in the New World, right? So so in particular, I think vis-a-vis African slavery, that's that's where most people trace the idea. Um, but we, you know. Ideas, so, so that, if that's the idea of race, and we, you know, we had that idea that, okay, if you're black, you're inferior, and therefore it's perfectly fine to enslave you or to even to let you die um, in huge numbers as you're, cross, you're crossing the ocean in these slave ships, um, and, you know, and it's, you know, the the it becomes a justification for the lack of humanity. That is all. That's the origin. But then we have this question of well, how has how did race change over time? And in particular, in the United States context, how did it change after slavery? And so we see evolution because even even during slavery, but especially after slavery, when all slaves are are freed. Um, legally, right? Formally, there's there's no longer this this assumption that you can treat them, you know, all the same. And so then you see other kinds of um, other kinds of tools 
uh, crop up to to do that job to protect um, white interest, white supremacy. Tell me if this is relatively correct. I was looking up this just because I wanted to get something clear in my head. So Latino, Latinas are um, essentially from South America, the Caribbean, Central America. Is that who um, are, is that who's considered Latino? Yes, yes. So so it's a great question. So it's and it's definitely something that that this book takes on. Um, so and especially it's 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 just it's very interesting to think about. And and I have okay. So Latinos are people who live in the United States whose ancestry or origins are in. Latin America. Now, that um, that means that I'm talking about um, I'm not talking about people who are necess- I'm not talking about people in Latin America. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I'm talking about people in the United States whose origins are from right. Latin America or partially from Latin America, right? Um, so again, that's that's uh, that's Mexican Americans. You know, just thinking who are actually about seven out of ten Latinos in the United States are of Mexican origin. Uh, Puerto Ricans, uh, 10% of Latinos, um, about 9.5% actually. Uh, Cuban Americans um, and Dominican Americans, they're about uh, 3.5, 3.8 um percent of the population. Central Americans um, combined from all countries of Central America are about 9%. Um, and then you're left with a really small number, which is everybody else from of, of other, other South American countries, um, right? It's, uh, did I leave? I think I got everything right there. I think I, I covered the, the continent there, I think. Caribbean, did you? Yeah, well, that was the Puerto. I mentioned oh, yes, that, yes, yes, Puerto yes, Rico, Puerto Rico, uh, Cuban, and Dominican. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And what do those what what so what do the what do those countries have in common that are that make up those largest groups, right? And it's intensive American imperialism, right? So starting, of course, with the. Uh, the war with Mexico and the taking of the territory of Texas and the rest of the Mexican session, which was uh, nearly half of Mexico's total territory, right? Um, And then looking at the Spanish-American War in 1898, and that's when the U.S. takes um, occupation of uh, Puerto Rico, um, still in a colonial status and also occupation at the time of the Philippines and Guam. Um, And let's see, in going down further in time, in the 20s, there's the U.S. Marines invade um, the Dominican Republic and Haiti um, and stay in uh, the Dominican. They share the same island um, in the Caribbean, and uh, they stay in... um, Dominican Republic for the Marines are there for 20 years, I believe. Um, and similarly, thinking about Central America, 
um, there's there's and I many Americans had the idea after the war with Mexico that the U.S. could should just keep moving south, right? And in particular, there was a hunger to um, create access between the Pacific and the Atlantic, and that eventually leads to the Panama Canal, you know, which is a huge huge enterprise in terms of American imperialism and American military might and American uh, corporate might as well, because those channels were needed for, for trade for U.S. corporations, right? So the, the, the book goes into, um, and since I'm sharing chapter titles, chapter one is entitled, We Are Here Because You Were There. And it's basically, mm-hmm. what are the connections between U.S. imperialism and economic displacement, in particular, of indigenous people in Central America and Mexico, and then those people's migrations here. You know, I want to um, talk a little bit about Latinos and politics. And I'm thinking back before the 2016 election, and actually even before that, when I remember reading about the importance of the parties, and I I remember particularly reading about the Democrats, it was really important for them to get the Latinos on board as as voters who were going to vote for the Democratic candidates. And right now, we're a very short distance from this next election, and I haven't myself come across anything that I can remember that talks about, for example, the Democratic Party needing to, quote-unquote, court the um, Latino population. I watched the uh, convention all last week, and Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I thought it was a a wonderful display of diversity around this country. And it it felt very exclusionary. Not exclusionary, inclusionary, rather. Yeah. But I don't, I haven't heard anything, and maybe you can tell me otherwise, that there is a concerted effort to reach out to the Latino population. Well, that is, you know, I I was obviously, well, not obviously, but I also watched the convention last week with, uh, you know, anticipation and, and interest and um, and there was you know there was some controversy uh, well a couple of controversies that that we heard about before the convention one was that um, there was some press on the fact that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was only going to be allowed to speak for one minute I think it ended up being like a minute and a half Um, she was seconding the nomination for Bernie Sanders. Um, and there was sort of this sense of, well, we're being, we're being dissed, you know? Um, and then the other thing that, that some people have been talking about, well, was why wasn't Joaquin Castro speaking when so many other um, presidential candidates uh, spoke, even some who didn't do as well as he did, like Beto or O'Rourke from El Paso, right? So, so there were rumblings or mumblings about about those those things. But um, I think, on the other hand, there was a family um, talking about immigration. You know, uh, a woman who 
a mixed status family, right? So she was born in the United States, but her sister and her mother weren't, and she was translating for them, and the, that that was very, very moving as well. Um, and, of course, we had Eva Longoria um, on the first night of the convention as the MC. Um, I think that... I think that maybe what is going on is that we're feeling, again, and this kind of goes back to the question that you framed with respect to police brutality, is that there is a lot of emphasis and there has been a lot of emphasis on African-Americans and making sure that the African-American vote gets out. Um, and I think that's partly connected to the George Floyd, but it's also just the legacy of the, the, the fact that, that African-Americans, and especially African-American women, turn out in such reliable numbers, right? So, so the, we're thinking, okay, well, where is the campaign to attract Latinos? Right, exactly. Um, and there has been a lot of, I know that there's been uh, Spanish-language campaigns. I know that they hired, uh, the Biden campaign hired... Um, Latino decisions uh, to do their polling, or maybe the DNC hired them, but, but you know, they're very, very, one of the real, I think the real accurate and real community-embedded um, polling firms, and so to me that shows that they're interested. But, but I do think that we're right to ask the question, and in particular, I'm wondering what is being done to attract the Bernie Sanders Latino voters? Right. Mm -hmm. So that was a huge, huge part of the the Bernie Sanders Nevada win and of California voters. Right. And what is being done to attract those very progressive uh, Latino voters and to motivate them to to get out for this ticket. Right. Um, And I'm not sure that they're going to be motivated by the. Um, nomination of Kamala Harris for for vice president. You know, I think if I had to if I had to bet, I would predict that Trump will get less of the Latino vote than he did in 2016. And uh, you know, there's been some debate about how much of the Latino vote he did get in 2016. The numbers have ranged from around 18% at the low end to 30% estimates at the high end. Um, when you look at the the research, actually, though, I think it was closer to probably uh, 20%, 22% um, because of where the that most accurate uh, exit polling was done. And I think he'll get less than that this year. And I think we're probably going to have a good turnout because I think Trump has been the the best, um, as he is for so many constituencies, the best advertising for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Well, it'll be interesting to see by the time this is broadcast, the Republican um, convention will have just ended. So we have a few minutes left, Laura. Talk about what you would like the impact of this book to have? Well, I'm hoping that it, I, I guess there's there's uh, two audiences that I think of. I think about 
those, what I called the, earlier the media establishment, which is very much focused in uh, New York and uh, Washington uh, with an outpost in Atlanta uh, for CNN. And that, I think that those, and, and I'm talking about publishing also, right, they, they just, I hope that they learn something from this book. And and I think there are so many misconceptions, such as that all Latinos are immigrants, right, when only 20% of Latinos were born outside the United States. So I'm hoping that, that it reaches and kind of has a consciousness-raising kind of effect with those audiences. And then the second audience is for Latinos, right? And Latinos, I think, I, th- I guess I've found that um, with my past books that there's a real hunger. Um, and it's not just young people, you know, college-age people or high school-age people. It's all Latinos just are very hungry for information and historical context and, um, you know, just just stories. And so I think that, you know, I'm hoping that, that I reach those two audiences, and I hope that I've written the book, which is, is pretty concise, I think. I hope that I've written it in a way that it's accessible to, um, to both of those major audiences. Well, before I say goodbye to you, um, Laura, talk a little bit about growing up in Albuquerque. You went, you were there as a young child, right? Yeah. So I was actually born in Roswell, and my parents were both born in Roswell, but we moved to Albuquerque when I was two years old in 1966 when my father started uh, attending the University of New Mexico, and... um, uh, he was one of the founders of the the uh, United Mexican American Students, um, UMAS, uh, and that was a very, very exciting time. Um, I think politically, uh, he was very engaged, and and also he and my mother were engaged in other kinds of political um, movements um, of the time, and so I grew up. You know, I grew up in the 70s in Albuquerque uh, with a consciousness of myself as Chicana and um, and uh, politicized and grew up in the North Valley. Um, and I didn't, you know, most of the people that I went to school with didn't have that same kind of political consciousness. Um, but, you know, so sort of grew up in this cocoon of the North Valley, which at the time in the 70s was uh, overwhelmingly uh, Mexican-American. And, you know, Albuquerque was kind of a much more segregated city at the time. You know, the Heights were where white people lived. And, and you know, other than, than having some time at the university, I didn't, I didn't really go up to the Heights much. Um, I went to Valley High School. And so I think that you know, I think looking back, you know, retrospectively, all of those experiences were important um, to launching me into a career exploring these kinds of topics. And We're running out of time. You are an Albuquerque 
girl, true and true. I'm so glad <laughs> to know that you you're you're from here. So I've been talking to Laura E. Gomez, and she is the author of the new book, Inventing Latinos: A New Story of American Racism. It is published by New Press, and I'm assuming it's available at all the usual places. Yes, it is. Okay, so it was great to talk to you. I'm so glad um, we got this together. And Well, thank you, Carol. I really enjoyed it, and I, you have such a soothing voice. And, <laughs> and, you know, it's, like, it's kind of, I don't know, I'd put you right up there with, with Terry Gross. You know, oh, so, well, that is you know. maybe the highest compliment I could get as someone who <laughs> interviews. Thank you so much. Uh, well, you're welcome.